So if you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, in Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. Haggai chapter 2, verses 20 to 23. This has been a really challenging little epistle, if you will. There's been a lot of stuff going on, a lot of stuff happening in it. I don't often start... uh, I don't often start a sermon with a quote, but I think this is a really good quote. kind of gives us maybe a synopsis of these few verses. Richard Taylor writes, The final verses of the book bristle with language of divine selection that emphasizes Zerubbabel's role as a Davidic successor. Haggai's final message looks beyond the stark conditions that characterize the restoration of to the community, a time of apocalyptic interp- uh, interruption of human history signaled by the Lord's choice of a new leader. So when you look at this text this morning, and we'll kind of unpack it, uh, but there is, uh, there is a forward-looking dimension to this text. Uh, and, and as we go through it, hopefully you will see this. Uh, there are events that have to take place, and I do believe that these are within a time frame and that God will eventually bring at the culmination of his return. So first of all, let's look at God will intervene, and we look at the shaking. Now this is the fourth message of Haggai in the epistle. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. So we do know that was December 18th. It was uh, Kislev, which is when Hanukkah in the second century started uh, at that point. So we do know this is the last message, and it was recorded. So the messages that went before in this short uh, two-chapter letter, the nation needs to repent. We saw that the nation had returned from Babylonian captivity. They had made it back to Jerusalem. The Persian king had released them and said, you can go back and start rebuilding the temple. They had laid the foundation. They had uh, started the altar at some degree. And then the nation went and they worked on their homes. They got things together. The problem was, the problem was that that was 20 to 25 years after they had already returned home. So the house of God was still unfinished. And so Haggai calls on the nation of Israel to say, look, look at what it looks like now. How many of you remember what it used to look like? It's time to get busy. And then Haggai challenges them and said, consider your ways and to move forward and to start rebuilding the temple of God. The second one, the nation repents. In chapter 1, verses uh, 12 to chapter 2, verse 9, Everybody from Zerubbabel on down, they repented, and and God said, okay, now at this point, we're going to have a movement in the nation of Israel away from self-centeredness, and we're going to focus on God's house. And when we look at the Old Testament, where did God dwell? He dwelled in the temple. Now when we look at us, where does God dwell? He dwells in the physical temple, which really becomes a spiritual temple 
because we have the Holy Spirit living in us. The third message, which was last week, God promises a blessing. I have said this before and I'll say it again. Um, I think sometimes in our own lives we miss the blessing of God because we are not fully connected to him, fully following him, fully doing what God wants us to do on a daily basis. And sometimes I think we might miss a full blessing of God because we're not doing what he's called us to do. And I just wonder, you know, how many blessings have I missed? How many blessings have you missed? Because at times in our lives, we drift, we migrate, and then eventually we come back to God. And, and God uses all things uh, for his purpose. And I realize that God can even use rebellion to bring us back. That's not how we want to live. We want to try to follow him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, and with all of our strength. So those, uh, this fourth message now appears to focus on timelines. So when we talk about these, these verses, 20, 21, 22, and 23, we are talking about a future event, something that's going to happen in the future. Now, in verse 21, he says, Speak to Zerubbabel, say that four times real fast, see if you get tongue-tied. Governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth. We've seen this before, but notice what's absent here. What's absent here is there is no mention of Joshua. There is no mention of Judah. This message is directly for Zerubbabel. He is the one that this is directed at. The other messages were directed at the people. This one now concentrates on this leader. And he is not called son of Shetail here. So when, when scholars look at this, they think that this is a reference to the Davidic line, which is absolutely true. Shetail uh, is actually mentioned in Matthew, part of the uh, Davidic line. Now this word speak is very interesting. Very interesting word. It, it's amal, amal. And it has several meanings in scripture. In, in fact, uh, quite a few meanings. It can mean to talk. It can mean something that is said. It can mean to call. It can mean to ask. Uh, but it can also mean a promise. Given what follows here, I am assuming that he is talking here when he speaks to Zerubbabel. This is a one-on-one -on -one message between Haggai and Zerubbabel. He's making a promise to Zerubbabel that something is coming. And so he says, I'm about to shake, roash, roash, which means to cause to shake or to tremble. And there's going to be a total upheaval here a total upheaval of something that is either impending or it is in the future. Let's go back and look at, uh, let's look at a timeline. So the temple was first destroyed right around 586. And that was destroyed by Babylon, by Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar went and destroyed the temple. So for 70 something years, that temple laid in decimation, if you will, and also that the people were in captivity. 
now we fast forward, we come to the Persians. Right around 520, Israel is then freed and sent back to Jerusalem. In fact, uh, uh, Ezra tells us that the king of the Persians said, I want you to go back, and I, God told me to let you go back home, and I want you to start rebuilding the temple. Now, as we move forward in time, Alexander the Great, he will come on the scene around, uh, well, 300 B.C., 300 years before Christ. There will then be this upheaval again in which he will, he will dominate the world landscape and also actually pave the way for Christ. A lot of people don't realize that. that Alexander the Great was, was massive in the plan. And you can just see God shaking, shaking, shaking governments. This, of course, Alexander will continue until Rome takes over and becomes the dominant power. And, of course, at that time, Christ has, has come and he is on the scene. And now God has shaken the world again. One thing to remember, so easy, it's so easy to forget, to forget this. Uh, when we look at our world today, it, it's a mess, right? Would you guys agree with me? It's kind of a mess. Things that used to not be allowed are now being allowed. There's this, but I'm telling you, it's God shaking. God is shaking. Don't ever forget that God is shaping world events. And the Bible says that God raises leaders. He also brings them down. So the people that are in charge right now have been put there by God. And I know it sounds counterproductive, but God is using the, the current leaders, world leaders, right now to bring us to the point of the return of Christ. Now, we don't have to like it. And we know that when the Lord Jesus was here, he said, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Can you imagine? Think about it for a minute. Jerusalem is this tiny little area in the Middle East. It is surrounded by enemies, and yet they have not been able to take the nation of Israel. Why is that? It's God's land. God is the one in charge, and, and God, God is going to protect Israel. That doesn't relieve us from the, from the need to pray for them. We always have to pray for the nation of Israel and pray for the peace of Israel. But God has this. And when I look at this, you know, tell Zerubbabel, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. He's going to continue to do this. So there is, at least in my understanding of this, there is a timeline that God has. Now, the shaking, I would maintain, is continuing even to this day. When one leader rises, the other leader falls, on and on and on, God's moving world events. But God also tells Zerubbabel through Haggai that I'm going to do some overthrowing. Now watch what he writes. And to overthrow the kings, verse 22, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdom of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword, uh, by his brother. Hafax, 
hafax means to overthrow something or to flip it over, to flip. And when we talk about some of the Old Testament issues like Amos in 4.11, I overthrew some of you as I did when I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. How about Exodus 15.1? This is Moses singing, I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider has been thrown into the sea. So you have all of this overthrowing. Again, God is moving world events towards the culmination of Christ. Now, what will God overthrow? God will overthrow world leaders, throne of kingdoms. This word throne, kisei, can mean a chair, which is interesting. He's going to overthrow a chair. That's not exactly what it means. But it is a reference to leaders who rule over people. Kingdoms. Makala. Makala in a general sense. It is referring to the present kingdoms. Of course, Persia defeated by Greek and so on and so forth. So God's already been doing that. God has already been overthrowing the kingdoms. Secondly, Ungodly nations, the strength of the nations, mostly a reference to military. You know, we, we see what's happening. We see what's happening in our culture. And we see that China is becoming more and more powerful. You look at the invasion of the Ukraine by the Russians. Uh, and I've kind of lost track of that. But these military powers are not going to be able to match God. Specifically, God will overthrow the chariots and their riders shall all go down. But there's one here that I thought was very interesting. And that is everyone by the sword of his brother. When you go back and you read Revelations 16 and 19, you see that there is a confusion on the world stage. So as we think about moving forward in time, I do believe that this is connected to the book of Revelation. And there is coming a day, there's coming a day, right? God's going to reestablish his throne. God will be over the nations. He will, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Uh, the militaries will not be able to stand against them, and there's going to be mass confusion. I think, and we've been living in the last days since Christ. When Christ came on the scene, Hebrews 1, 1 says, in these last days, God has spoken to us through his Son. So we are in the last days. We have been in the last days since Christ came. So these events that Haggai's writing about here, these events have not yet taken place, even when Haggai wrote them. Spence Jones makes a great quote, I will overthrow the throne of the kingdom. No events in Zerubbabel's lifetime satisfied this prediction, which awaits for its fulfillment in the Messianic age. And I think he's right. 
Because when you look back, Zerubbabel will become, he is in the line of David. And so, I, I can't jump too far ahead here. I want to, but I can't. Okay. And fulfill his promise. And he mentions here a servant. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant. Now he mentions the son of Shetile, declares the Lord. Yom is the word for on that day. I still remember Martin Luther saying there's two days that really matter, today and that day. Uh, and here, this word has 28 different meanings in Hebrew. It can mean a 24-hour period, which we learn in Genesis. When you look at the word in Genesis, yom means a 24-hour period of time. But here, it can, it can mean an indefinite period of time, either short or long. When we look at time as humans, I'm going to tell you how old I am, 63. Well, it was yesterday that I was 15. It seems like a very short period of time. But if you ask a young person, 63, I'm almost dead, right? They're like, whoa, 63, <laughs> trying to revive, right? A thousand years is as one day and one day as a thousand years with the Lord. So when we think about time and we think about the timeline that Haggai is presenting here, which is really prophetic, because we have that shaking God is changing the landscape, landscape constantly to usher in the return of Christ. That's promise. I'm going to tell you something this morning. Jesus is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and we can trust that. But here, no events focus like in Zerubbabel's time. There's, just, there's no events that show that this came about. On that day, it can be a short time, it can be a long time. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shetile, which is in the lineage of the Davinic line, declares the Lord. I will take you, Laka, to grasp or to clutch something. In other words, God's saying to Zerubbabel, I have you. You are mine. And I am going to make you great. For from you comes that divinic line that God promised that I will establish his throne forever. He's called my servant, Ivid. Ivid, one who has authority in government, but is a servant. I remember, wow, it's been six years. I remember when I uh, graduated at Lincoln Christian and waiting to go up on stage and get my diploma and 
I remember going up and they gave me a bowl. They gave me a bowl and it says, Dr. Me. <laughs> uh, they had that imprint on the bowl. And when they gave it to me, they said, always remember that you are a servant. We are servants. We are saved. We are servants. Isaiah 42.1. I want you to see that there's a, there's a connection here. Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. That's a reference to Christ. That's a reference to Christ. And so we look at here and we look at Zerubbabel. He's going to be in that line. It is going to be, he is going, you're going to be reminded of being a servant. Let me remind us all this morning that God has you. He has you. You are his. For those of you that have trusted in Christ, he has you. And from that grabbing and that holding, we also become servants. That's our mission. Our mission is to serve one another. Our mission is to serve the world. Our mission is to serve Christ. We have a ministry placement team meeting coming up this week where we're going to be looking for servants who will fill various roles in the church and help the church move forward. We are all servants. One of the things that's most fascinating about these verses, and it's quite difficult, um, I probably spent 23 hours going through text and verses trying to piece this together to see what he's trying to say, because obviously it is futuristic. One, things that, one of the things that fascinated me was the signet ring. Quite fascinating. So he says, On that day, declares the Lord, I will make you my servant and make you like a signet ring. So when we think about the signet ring, um, well, we'll just kind of go through it. It was a seal would sometimes be worn around the neck, but mostly it was worn here. It was so valuable. I think that's one of my, one of my points. I'm kind of jumping ahead. It's used for a pledge. Oh, so, so awesome. It's used of a pledge or a guarantee of some future payment. So Haggai's telling uh, Zerubbabel, God is going to use you like a promise. It's going to be a promise, and there's going to be a signet ring that's going to be put on you. The third thing this means is it was worn on the finger or around the neck. I'll say this. Most of the time, particularly when kings wore them, they wore them on their finger because they were so important. And they would stamp with that signet ring official documents. If you wore it around your neck when you're sleeping, it might be able to come off if somebody tries to get a ring off, you're probably going to wake up. These, this signet ring was phenomenal. So 
why did God call Zerubbabel that I'm going to make you a signet ring? Well, because he has to reverse something that happened that went before it. Jeremiah 22, 24. As I live, declares the Lord, though Coniah, the son of Jehoahim, Jehoiakim, thank you, Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, yet I will tear you off and will give it to the hand of those who seek your life into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and into the hands of the Chaldeans. This is where it happened. This is where the Israelites went in. God said, I have taken that signet ring. The divinic line hangs in the balance. So one king had it, Coniah had it, and he said, I'm taking that away from you because you've been disobedient. Now this divinic line is in, it's in a difficult spot. And God says, because you have been faithful, I am going to give you and make you a signet ring, reestablishing the divinic line. Only God can do that. Quite amazing. Quite amazing. So Zerubbabel actually becomes a major figure in the Old Testament, even though we have trouble pronouncing his name at times. He, be, he says, I'm going to make you a signet ring, and that, that break that happened right here with Coniah, that break that happened, I'm going to reestablish the Davidic line, which will ultimately what? Lead to Christ. Fascinating. He says, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Chosen, Bahau. And that word simply means selected. It's interesting that the priest is not mentioned here. Zerubbabel is mentioned as the one that will carry the Davidic line. Why is that? Because when you are the king, you are royal. And when Jesus comes, he will be our royal king. He didn't use the priest. He used Zerubbabel as a figure of the foreshadowing of Christ. He will have that signet ring. He will be the official bearer and commander. And so this ushers in Christ. <laughs> this is so awesome. Um, Herbert Wolf writes this, Haggai may be saying that this Jewish leader is a pledge or a guarantee that the Davidic dynasty will someday produce a king. From the time he wrote this, there were roughly 500 years before Christ. And about 300 B.C. or thereabouts is when Alexander the Great begins making his push. And world domination, which God is shaking, he's upheavaling the governments, 
He's shaking it because he knew, as in Paul writes in Galatians, at just the right time, God sent forth his son. And on the world scene came Jesus. The King Messiah. And we go back. That line, I thought about this, that line could have stopped because of sin. But God said, wait a minute. They've repented. They're restoring the temple. Now I am going to restore the signet ring. It's going to be on you. That Davidic line will keep going forward. Forward, Christ is here. Here's the good news. There's another shaking coming. There's another shaking coming. And that's when Christ comes back. And then we're in the uh, apostolic age. We are in the eschatological age. And all of the events that are still waiting to unfold in the book of Revelation. But there's one verse. There's one verse, or two verses actually, here that really caught my attention this week. Not from Haggai. Because when you trace these words, they mean they mean a lot of different things. Do you know we have the signet ring? I'll show you how. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. Signet ring. You were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit, who is a guarantee. The Holy Spirit is the signet ring that comes in our hearts and resides in our hearts and is a promise of the life that is to come with God in heaven, with Christ, and with all the saints who went before. In Him you are guaranteed. That was one of the reasons for the signet ring. It is a promise that something is coming. And what is coming is until the acquired possession. God has got us. We are, we are his possession. We are the signet ring inwardly, not outwardly, but inwardly to the praise of his glory. This is so fascinating. Sealed is the same word for signet ring or promised or uh, something that is guaranteed. So God gives us the Holy Spirit as a signet ring a deposit that someday we will see him face to face that is mind-boggling because we are now with the holy spirit living in us when we die the holy spirit and us we go because when god gave us the spirit the day that you trusted in jesus christ the holy spirit came in he took possession Romans 8 says it's the spirit of adoption where his spirit adopts our spirit and we become children of God. And therefore, based on that, we are now in the line of the established kingdom. That's big for us. That's huge. Talking with Newt Larson several years ago, about this chosen, chosen before the foundations of the world. So we were talking about it, and I think Newt Larson had a pretty good explanation. 
some people believe that God pre-chooses those to be saved. I don't agree with that. But I do believe we have a choice. We have a free will either to receive or reject. And Newt Larson and I were talking about it, and he said it's like you have this tunnel, and you walk through the tunnel into the kingdom, and you turn around and you look on the upper side of the door, and it says chosen before the foundations of the world. So back when, before Genesis, God had a plan, shaking, 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 that would lead to this ultimate place where Christ is going to dominate the world. What we need to know and be mindful of is that we are going to see God face to face. We are, in a sense, his signet ring by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And we can rejoice knowing, knowing that we are the chosen. We are the chosen. When I think of chosen, I think of God foresaw the cross, and he said, all those who trust in me, they will be the chosen. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, you become the chosen. If God arbitrarily just picks who he wills, I want you to be saved and you not to be saved and you to be saved and not saved, then that doesn't leave any room for free will. We have no choice in the matter. That is not the God that I worship. The God that I worship gives us the free choice so that when we reject Christ, it is on us, not on God. Because if God says, you're going to be saved and you're going to be lost and there's nothing that you can do in your lostness, in my mind, God becomes unjust. We know this as Southern Baptists. We talk about it all the time that you have to trust in Christ. There has to come a moment in your life when you trust in him. Not in Sunday school, not in the preacher, not in First Baptist Church at Tolono. I'm talking about trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. At that moment, you become chosen of God and become as a signet ring in the line, in the line of David. We're not the king, obviously, but we're in that line. And I go back and I look at, do you know who's in that line? Rahab, the harlot, is mentioned in that line. Why is that? Because God is compassionate. God is loving. He is a caring God. And, he, he and guess what? In the annals of history, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Not in pencil, where it can be erased, but on stone. And in Revelation, when the books are opened, that's when it all comes to fulfillment. And if your name is not found written in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will spend eternity in a place called Gehenna, or hell, and you will burn for all eternity. But for us, for us, we know that we're going to win because God promised it. God promised it. 